0: I invite you to take out a Bible and turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 5. It's not a hard book to find because it's a pretty big one in the middle of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 5. The words are projected for us. I'm going to be reading. It might be a little bit different from that, but it's probably pretty close. I think I may have used a different version of the NIV. I've just printed it out, so I've got it right here in front of me. But we are going to be studying something that is of great importance, actually. We're going to be thinking about leading into the next sermon, not the next one I plan to do here, but one that I plan to do here maybe in January, when I've been invited to come back, if that works out, on this whole Principles of Holiness series that I've been doing. And I'm going to start addressing matters of justice and righteousness. And Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7, leads us into that well. So, I invite you to follow along as I read these words. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. But it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland neither pruned nor cultivated and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries, of distress. And one verse from John 2, chapter 10. Everyone brings out the choicest wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. As I have been working on this uh, Principles of Holiness sermon series, in which, as I already said, the next one will be uh, addressing issues of justice and righteousness, or at least getting into that, I came across this text. And I think it does lay a very good foundation for exploring matters of justice and righteousness, which, when we think about it, has a whole lot of different dimensions. And this text here in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, invites us to think about these things with that word picture of a vineyard in which everything went wrong. And as I've investigated this text and its tragic story, I was drawn to that remarkable statement contained in the story of Jesus' first miracle, that story told in John 2, verses 1 through 11, which, if we know the the Scripture stories, it's a miracle that featured Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding in Cana. Now, the, the obvious connection between these two quite different texts is the relation between vineyards and wine. There's my title of vineyards and wine. Now, of course, we probably all are aware that vineyards produce grapes. If you know, there's approximately 10,000 varieties of grapes worldwide. And they vary in size and shape and color and taste. Some of them, we know, are, are eaten as they're picked. We go to the grocery store, we buy a bunch of grapes and, and we wash them and we just eat them like that. Others are dried into raisins, and others are used for making grape juice, but most are cultivated specifically for winemaking. Southern Ontario has many vineyards and wineries, most of them located in the Niagara region. There's approximately 50 over there, and in Prince Edward County, just an hour west of, of Kingston. And that contributes to the 23 million liters of different varieties of wine produced commercially in Ontario every year, ranging from very basic table wines to what can be rather expensive, ice wines. It's a lot of wine. And some people dabble in making wine. That's in addition to all of that. Sometimes I make a little wine too. My wife one time said to me, she said, I'd like to make some wine. She's Dutch, so she doesn't want to spend a lot at the stores. She says, I'd like to make some wine. And her brother does that. So we've gotten some from him once in a while. And so I said to Tina, well, okay, maybe we'll get some stuff and we'll, we'll, make, we'll make some wine. She says, well, I'd like to make it. Guess who makes the wine? <laughs> She's pretty good at having a drink of it now and then, though. No, but it, it's, it's kind of nice to have it around if, if you can use wine. But biblical history also reveals to us that wines have been around for an extremely long time. In Genesis twenty seven, twenty-eight, Isaac blesses his son Jacob. He says to him, May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. Another example is the warning of Ephesians 5 8, where God's word says, Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. And we all know of people who attest to the truth of that. So, for those who do use wine, perhaps to marinate a steak or accent a nice meal, we do so recognizing that using wine can be problematic for some people due to its alcoholic content. And such people must stay away from it and leave it alone. And, and in love and concern for their well being, we are wise to honor that whenever it is necessary. But we're also taught in the Bible that the commonality of wine provides for symbolically illustrating and teaching some valuable lessons. In that regard, wine often represents vibrant life, joy, prosperity, and abundance under God's blessings. You hear that in those words from from Isaac to Jacob, an abundance of grain and new wine. Joy, prosperity, vibrant living, abundance, blessings. And we can't ignore the most important symbolic use of all, where wine, which for aforementioned reasons, many churches substitute non-alcoholic grape juice when celebrating the sacrament of Holy Communion. That wine, that drink, represents the blood of Jesus that's been shed on the cross of Calvary for the forgiveness of our sins. That's probably the most powerful lesson of all. And furthermore, we also need to understand a little bit of the historical context. You see, in in the world of the Bible, mildly fermented wine was a common beverage people often had on hand. And that is simply because water supplies were often limited and of questionable quality. It was okay for cooking and bathing and such and, and, and for animals to drink, but it could be quite risky for human consumption. We here are blessed with having ample supplies of good water we get from our taps, even from our wells. And we can test it to make sure it's good. But we also know that water can turn bad quite quickly. Like like with the water that I put out for our little flock of chickens every morning. When we have warm temperatures, often by evening it gets kind of slimy. Even around the rim of their container, it's just ugh. And our chickens, who are rather spoiled, they won't even touch it. In the ancient... And biblical world goods safe to drink water was a rare commodity. So making water into wine made it safer to drink. And it preserved it so it could be kept for a while. So there was a practical purpose for it. And in addition to that common wine people had on hand, there were also the wines that were made and used for celebrations, like in the Passover festivities, where there are four significant moments when a participant drinks a small cup of wine each of those four representing, highlighting, and illustrating a different lesson of the Passover Seder meal. And, and then there was the celebration wines that were used at events like weddings. Like the wedding described in John 2, verses 1 through 11, where we find that amazing statement with which I'll be getting to later in this sermon. But before getting there, we need to explore the symbolism of the vineyard as representing the land and people of God. Like in Isaiah one verses seven Isaiah five, one through seven, where where the vineyard actually represents the land of Israel. God's people are the grapevines. Their works are the grapes. And that is symbolism and imagery Jesus even used to describe himself, describing himself as the true grapevine, and the believers to be the branches. And that that really means that everyone who proclaims and follows Jesus as Lord and Savior is part of his worldwide vineyard, all growing out of that that root of Jesus. And we can certainly celebrate that. However, Isaiah 5, 1-7 through 7 contains a cautionary prophetic message. A warning about being smug about that. So, let's get into that. Those first two verses describe how someone identified as God's loved one creates a really beautiful vineyard hear it again. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. Can, Can you picture it? A vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up. He cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then he looked for a crop of good grapes. So who is this loved one? Well, in texts in chapter 4 and 11, Isaiah refers to him as the branch of the Lord. A person whose identity is further clarified in Jeremiah 23, verse 5, where we read, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Oh, there's that theme, justice and righteousness. He will do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. There's that word again, righteous. We don't have to really guess too hard who this is. Following the coming of Jesus and revelations of his identity, we know that the loved one is Jesus. And if we delve into those texts of Isaiah 11 and Jeremiah 23 further, we discover that the focus of his reign is the restoration of justice and righteousness throughout the world. Now, those first two verses of Isaiah 5 inform us that God's loved one, Jesus, worked hard to prepare for producing grapes. He's, he's clearing and plowing the land these word pictures, we we can see that in our in our mind's eye. He's working there. He's clearing it. He's he's plowing the land. He's he's picking up the rocks and using them perhaps to build a wall. He he then selects and plants the best vines he can come up with. He builds a watchtower to guard it and protect it all. He even makes a wine press, which tells us that he has in mind to produce good wine. Maybe. Maybe wine for a grand celebratory feast like, like the event that Revelation 19 verse 9 calls the wedding feast of the Lamb. Maybe. Regardless, when all was prepared in this beautiful vineyard, God's loved one waits for a harvest of good grapes. And so far we really do have a quite wonderful picture. It's one that anyone who gardens or the farmers here know well. It's, it's a lot of work. There is a great deal of work involved, even if we have lots of machinery to do it. And, and and there's that hope and that anticipation of reaping a good harvest. And we can resonate with this little picture that Isaiah is giving us. But in Isaiah 5, verses 3 and 7, we hear that everything went wrong in this beautiful vineyard. In spite of all of his work and effort, that vineyard only produced bad fruit and as a result god prophetically declares that he would destroy the vineyard and from the historical account we know that that's exactly what happened over the next several hundred years israel at the hands of the assyrians judah and jerusalem at the hands of the babylonians and later the romans they were destroyed with everything reduced to rubble all because even though God's loved one had done everything possible to create a vineyard that would produce a harvest of good grapes. But why? Why did everything go so dramatically and drastically wrong? Well, as back in the days of Noah, sin had controlled and influenced even God's chosen people. Remember, this is addressed to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Even God's chosen people have been affected so much by sin that, once again, God's wrath was necessarily poured out. And even those who were good and faithful suffered right along with the rest. So, Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7 ends up being a tragic song. And we must pay attention to the principal reason why God levied divine punishment on His people. It's spelled out very plainly in verse 7 he looked for justice but saw bloodshed for righteousness but heard cries of distress and these little statements tell us that at the core of living god's way well is a society that is built on justice justice that flows out of righteousness i'll explain more about that in the next sermon i do in this series now lest we think that this text is only a warning directed at God's people in Isaiah's time, we must remember that such prophetic messages always have implications for God's people in every time and place. So what is Isaiah 5 verses 1 through 7 saying to God's people in our time and place? Well, here's a question. What's the status of righteousness and justice in our world? Saying about it a couple songs already. Everything feels broken. Everything feels broken. Things are going wrong. And justice, it's rare. Righteousness, pretty much non existent. And then recognizing that Isaiah 5 is addressed to God's people then, it's also addressed to God's people now. And we have to ask ourselves are God's people producing good grapes? of godly-infused righteousness and justice in our communities? I think in many ways we are, and we are certainly trying. And we know that all of it flows out of the gratitude of our hearts for the immense blessings of God's people who receive that because of everything that Jesus has accomplished for us at the cross of Calvary. Forgiveness, salvation, hope, all of that, it belongs to us. We've received it, and in gratitude for that, remember one of the principles of holiness sermons was about gratitude? Gratitude out of gratitude for all of that we work to produce good grapes but it's not easy and producing those good grapes should be the foundation upon which we stand firm in our faith remembering even in all of the noise and the chaos attempting to distract us that because of Jesus God's redeemed people are holy and we are challenged to be living into our holiness being faithful to God and His way of living always striving to live under and in God's perfect righteousness, seeking justice, as it says in Isaiah 117 and Micah 6 verse 8. We seek justice and we proclaim the praises and glory of him to whom we belong as redeemed people, as people who are set free from the ways of a world that is consistently and constantly rebelling against God, a way that Isaiah 5 verses 3 through 6 graphically and succinctly points out leads only to misery and destruction. And the good news of God's word is that that is not our destiny. Even though God's people Israel suffered severe consequences for their sinfulness, God retained and brought back a remnant to his vineyard. Preparing the way for Jesus to come who set his people on the way to producing good grapes that bring abundant blessings to our communities. And all of that because God so loves this world, so much so that Jesus came in a divine mercy and grace and love. He is creating a new vineyard from which the vines of his people reach out now and we embrace the entire world. And we proclaim the good news of God's love and grace and peace and justice flowing out of his righteousness. And we In faithfully following Jesus while we live forward into the future, remembering and anticipating that the best is yet to come. And that takes us to John 2, verse 10. As per that story, at the height of the festivities at that wedding in Cana, the wine ran out. And that was an oops of unimaginable magnitude, it was a social disaster. When Jesus' mother challenged him to do something about it, at first he seemed a little bit reluctant. said it wasn't the right time. Nevertheless, he told the servants to fill the jars used for ceremonial washing with water. And that water miraculously turned into the best wine. Now I can tell you, it takes about four weeks to make a bottle of wine. This turned into wine instantly. Miraculous. And there's a lot to this story. When the master of the banquet sampled that new, miraculously provided an abundant wine, he immediately rushed over to the host and he applauded him saying, you have saved the best until now. And although he was merely talking about the wine in that moment, his statement in a declaration of prophetic fulfillment that blesses us still here today is declaring the truth about Jesus beginning his public ministry. And from that moment on, To use the imagery of that miracle, the best wine of the kingdom of God began to be poured out, blessing people in ways not experienced before because God's loved one was now with His people, redeeming, renewing, restoring, rebuilding His once ruined vineyard. A vineyard wherein His people, the vines, are in partnership with Him challenged to produce a harvest of good grapes. And that harvest is identified by Jesus in John 4 verse 36 as all of the people who are brought to eternal life. Those are the good grapes harvest. The people who are brought to eternal life. And that advent of Jesus' work, inaugurated with a miracle of wine, started a journey for God's people that will see to use that imagery even more. Even better wine poured out and enjoyed today, tomorrow, forever remembering that, as I said earlier in the biblical message, wine often represents vibrant life, joy, prosperity, and abundance under God's blessings. Blessings that we here in Athens and God's people everywhere are called to share with our world, a broken world, that needs so much that we have to offer to it. And we do that knowing, as God's word promised, the best really is yet to come. And our hope about that rests in believing that someday, perhaps very soon, Jesus will return. And then, God's people will enjoy living forever in a kingdom that is defined by perfect righteousness, perfect goodness, perfect everything. So, people of God, in spite of being in a world that is going the wrong way, may we, in holiness and righteousness, live bold, following Jesus, guided by His Spirit, doing His work producing good fruit for the harvest celebration that is coming, always trusting that the best is yet to come. Let us pray. Father, just a few words in that book of Isaiah that give us such a powerful picture. A picture of you working to make things wonderful and good. It's almost a picture of creation where you said everything was good. And then everything went wrong. And we know that the biblical story tells that. And and we acknowledge that. And as we sang earlier, this world feels broken. And we watch the news or read the news. And it certainly feels like that more and more. But we also know that the Bible tells us the best is yet to come. You are coming back. You are restoring your vineyard. Your people are producing good grapes. The world is being blessed. And we look forward to that day when you return and all the perfect goodness and righteousness and everything else that that will involve. But meanwhile, Lord, we know that we have work to do because we are the vines spreading out from the root that is you. And we are challenged to produce good grace for your kingdom. So by the power of your Spirit, we ask that we will be able to do that well and faithfully. And we can only ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.